Wretched Friends. Hi, friends. Hope you're doing okay out there. Hope you're doing good. We're excited to be back. I feel like it's been a very long time since we recorded, and it hasn't been. Yeah, it's been like two days, dude. Yeah, I know. It's nice to be back together, though. Exactly. Yeah, and we talk literally daily, but <laughs> still. <laughs> but sometimes we talk about things that aren't murder, and yeah. that's what makes the days seem so long. I know when no one we're not talking about any murders although Um, I often I feel like it comes back to that but mm -hmm. I was trying to think about case updates today and I just don't have any but I was listening to Murder Squad and Mm -hmm. in their latest episode they respond very briefly about the new developments with Delphi Mm -hmm. and I loved what they had to say because they were like, look, you guys, like this is interesting, but it's not developments. This is not a solved case. I thought that was just really important to reiterate because we're all sharing like one true crime bubble, you know? So Mm -hmm. it's like we might be excited about this person of interest, but. And I think think it's Libby's sister. Mm -hmm. Kelsey. Yeah, Kelsey, who has been the one, you know, we've been excited about developments before, but this is no new information Mm -hmm. and. Let's just keep our cool. So I think that that's the smart way to go about it. I think that a lot of the podcasts have been a little inundated with Delphi updates, which if if anybody wonders, Mm -hmm. that's kind of why we haven't touched on it yet. We don't want to do an episode until we have more facts. And yeah, 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 we're gearing up to it. I'm also like very emotional about Delphi. So I need to be in a certain space. I need to approach it the right way for myself, you know, because I'm very emotional about it. So yeah, you're so close to it. So I get it. Yeah. And I was reading an article today about how um, I spent my whole day driving around town, dropping off yard signs for our seniors, (laughs) um, which is really cute. And uh, Libby and Abby should be class of 2021. Oh, so God. yeah, and that just, you know, it just got to me. Their class was uh, they were eighth graders the year I started teaching mm-hmm. eighth graders. So it was always just like so close to my heart. And then just thinking about, you know, they should be graduating and they're not. And yeah, it just oh, Delphi gets to me. So. Yeah. So, guys, we will bring you updates or information on that when we have it. But I think that yeah. it is a rough one to think about. Yeah. And we would we will definitely do a Delphi episode someday. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> there, There's so much other really, really, really good shows that cover it, though. Yeah. It's like, I don't know how needed we are in that space. And know? and that's kind of my thinking on it. Like, I know we we try to cover cases that aren't kind of otherwise covered and obviously we, mm-hmm. we want to do like the big hitters and all of that too. But Delphi has gotten so much coverage from a lot of the podcasts yeah. that we really love and we really respect. So I feel like us doing it would just kind of at this point be a rehash of that. Yeah, for listen sure. Listen to True Crime Garage. Listen to Murder Squad. There's a lot of really great Down ones. Hill. Down the Hill. Prosecutors. Mm-hmm. There's some really, really great ones out there. So uh, Case File also did a really good Delphi episode too. Oh, yeah. And you get to hear his beautiful Australian voice. I do love his voice. Me too. Oof. Me too. I wonder if people love our voices and they like tune in every week and they're like, oh, I just love that mixed voice. No, they don't. No, they don't. <laughs> Stop trying to make me feel better. <laughs> I'm trying. I know you're trying. Uh, it'll never happen. 
I had very traumatizing yeah. speech therapy as a child. It, it's just never going to yeah. happen. You really did. I know. <laughs> I know. So do you have any updates before we start on this case, which, um, wow, really got to my spirit? Case updates. Not of anything that we've covered, no. Do you want to get started? Uh, yeah, let's get started. <laughs> cool. Okay. <laughs> So today's case, like I said, it just really, it just burrowed into my spirit for like several days. This case was kind of all I could think about. It just really, it got in there. Mm -hmm. It got really in there. So um, I'll be curious to see kind of what you make of it. It has some echoes to other cases that we've looked at Mm -hmm. that I think are, um, the parallels are going to be a little shocking. I know absolutely nothing about this case, so I am ready to be Mm. for brand new information. Ooh, I love that. I'm serving brand new information realness all day. So is that, what does that beer say? Apple jam? It's triple jam, strawberry, blackberry, and raspberry hard cider. Yum. It's freaking delicious. That sounds good. good. We are going to my favorite beer state. Wisconsin? Wisconsin. Yep. Oh, best beer state. For real. Even as a Michigander, I have to say it. It's the best beer state. Mm -hmm. So we're going to Wisconsin today. I want to give some shout outs right off the bat to some really amazing reporting in this case. So kind of from the get-go, there was good reporting coming out of the Journal Times of Racine, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. So that's where I got most of my information, although there's plenty of other ways to couple it together. Um, but more recently, um, reporting by Adam Rogan for the Journal Times about this case has been phenomenal. So Adam Rogan, if you're out there, <laughs> really good stuff, man. <laughs> like, hey, Adam. Really good stuff. Hi. <laughs> you're good at your job. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I just want to get those little... You know, the shout outs, outs out, out of the way, our sources. So uh, I'm going to take us to July 21st, 1999. All right. So we're midsummer, and we are outside of Racine, which is a town in southern Wisconsin. So we're in northern Racine County. We're in a small town called Raymond, Wisconsin. So on July 21st in the morning, this guy, John Madden, and his 16-year-old daughter, Megan, were taking a walk with their dogs. Mm-hmm along 92nd Street in Raymond, Wisconsin. Now, 92nd Street is a very rural road. And, you know, looking on either side of it, if you do like a Google Street view, it's just vast farmland on either side, which is pretty classic. It's pretty typical. Yeah. Love it. Mm-hmm. Yep. So just like miles and miles of, of fields as far as you can see. So as they were walking, the dogs began to bark at the cornfield. And when they looked closer at what the dogs were reacting to, they saw the body of a young woman, like, lying openly in the corn, like, very, very, very visible, even from the road, like, barely, barely even in the cornfield. That's terrifying to start off your day with. Yeah, it really is. Megan, the daughter, she was 16 at the time, but she already had an interest in forensics, actually. And she now is a forensic investigator. Hell yes. Partially because of this case, yeah. Hell yes, Megan. I know. So partially because of this case and partially because she just had kind of interest anyway. 
the late 90s is when we started to see kind of like the boom of the forensic television show, you know. That brought us to where we are. Yeah, seriously, (laughs) those formative days. (laughs) But so she, because she was kind of a fan of this stuff, she noticed some things strange about the scene kind of right away, even as a, a teenager. She noticed the way that the the woman's arm was bent was very unnatural. It was kind of crooked behind her body, so clearly broken. Mm-hmm. And the most notable thing that she noticed was that the body was not wet, even though it had rained the night before. Oh, she is clever. She's good. good yeah, she's good. I know. I love that this is what she does for a living now. I just, I love that. <laughs> so obviously, you know, they alerted the authorities. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lieutenant Jim Sheriff was one of the first ones on the scene. So he is kind of where we get our first description of this young woman. So she was described as a young white woman, slim with reddish brown highlighted hair, and fully dressed. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we don't often find female bodies fully dressed in in our stories. So she was wearing uh, gray sweatpants. And like a black Western style shirt, if you can imagine like kind of that classic like rodeo wear kind of shirt that she, you know, with like embroidered red and white flowers Mm -hmm. and leaves and like pearlized buttons, like very classic. Yes, very classic. Jeez. She was about five foot eight and 120 pounds. So quite thin for that height. Quite tiny. Yeah. Yeah. 14 to 25 years old. That's a big range. Okay. Yeah, it is. But I feel like the more of the stuff that I read, the more often the ranges are really wide just because mm-hmm. it can be surprisingly hard to tell how old somebody really is. You know, you like to think you know the difference between a 14-year-old and a 25-year-old, but... Yeah, but do you always, you know? She also had no ID on or near her whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So there was no way to know who she was kind of right there at the scene. She had some abrasions on her body that the police noticed, but none of it was enough to kill her. Mm-hmm. So at first, they were pretty flummoxed by that, yeah. right? So he noted that she did have a very interesting feature, which was a deformed ear. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so his hope was that this would be like distinct enough that you know somebody could identify her, like kind of by her ear. But she didn't match any reported missing young women or girls in the area, so nobody. Nobody knew who she was. There was no one reported missing that matched that description. So it was it was a mystery kind of right away. When they questioned some of the neighbors about it, they found out that that particular intersection is like a very common place to dump like large garbage. Mm-hmm. Like people would go out there to dump like yard waste or like an old couch you don't want anymore, that kind of stuff. But nothing like that had ever been left there before. But that it was notable that it was kind of a known like dump site. Yeah for stuff so at that point it didn't feel like a total coincidence that that was where she was found Mm -hmm. right but you know nobody seemed to know who she was nobody knew how she got there all they knew was you know her description basically so over the next couple of days she was taken for autopsy in milwaukee Mm -hmm. and it was determined there that her death was a homicide but authorities would not release her cause of death to the public immediately because they were so worried that it would impede the investigation. Okay. Pretty standard. Yeah. But over the next couple of weeks, basically the mentality kind of seemed to shift to like, well, we don't have any information, so what are we impeding anyway? Yeah, exactly. If you have nothing to invest, like you have a body and that's literally it is what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. So 
So yeah, they had like nothing to impede on, right? So mm-hmm. they started to kind of small details began to kind of trickle out and be and be released. So what was released based on that autopsy is incredibly jarring. Okay. Um, what happened to this woman? So uh, just to kind of pre-warn, she was beaten to death. She had defensive wounds. She also had burn marks all over her body. She, there was evidence of a sexual assault. She had infected open wounds. She was malnourished. And she had broken ribs, basically in like various states of healing. So obviously some new breaks, some old breaks. The deformity in her ear was actually cauliflower ear. It was not like a congenital deformity. So she had received that from, you know, past trauma and then had more recent trauma Mm -hmm. to the side of her head. She also had like various chemical burns all over her body. Oh God, this poor woman. Yeah. And road rash as though she had been dragged alongside a moving car. Oh my God. Yeah. So um, there was no drugs in her system, Mm -hmm. no, no alcohol, nothing in there. She had severely decayed teeth, so just, um, you know, just a, a, a brutalized person who was probably in a lot, a lot, a lot of pain in life. Mm-hmm. The autopsy results also speculated that she was likely cognitively disabled. Okay, where did they kind of pull that from? Uh, physical features, and okay. um, we'll talk more about that later a little bit. Physical features, mostly. Um, she has physical features that kind of match a particular, I think, match a particular genetic disorder. So, um, okay. yeah. But, you know, she also, like, just in short, like, she was very distinctive, though. Like, you'd think that, like, someone's going to miss somebody with a disability, right? Like, that's, you'd hope yeah. that somebody, that they're cared for, that they are, you know, in somebody's fold, right? Yeah. Yeah, somebody's out there looking for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So based on that autopsy, we got the official cause of death. And like I said, it was ruled a homicide. And the cause was, and this is a direct quote, by sepsis pneumonia as a result of infection from injuries sustained from chronic abuse combined with blunt force trauma. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. So if you can imagine just the the utter brutality of what she went through pure abuse Mm -hmm. neglect oh yeah poor girl really really ugly stuff um (sighs) one of the reasons this case really kind of stuck in my heart i think was the local response to it Mm -hmm. so she was found on july 21 and then they kind of had done everything they could do as far as autopsy and things like that by October, so she was um, buried on October 27, 1999, and there's this local woman, her name was Renee Sura, and later on her daughter kind of became a part of this stuff too. She's a local of racing, but she's got like a particular interest in making sure that does don't get forgotten. So she kind Mm -hmm. of organized, like with the police, she organized like a beautiful funeral for Jane Doe. Aww. Yeah, which was really well attended. There were over 50 people there at the funeral, which for these, like, small towns, like, that's pretty significant. I love everyone in this town already. Me too. Me too. I love these people so much. And it was, so Renee Sura is just like, you know, we we will make sure that she is Mm -hmm. not a forgotten person. And she would really kind of 
stay on the authorities' butts to make mm-hmm. sure that that was the case. So, <laughs> so the Jane Doe uh, was buried at the Holy Family Cemetery in Caledonia, Wisconsin, which is just another nearby town. And her grave marker read, daughter, Jane Doe, gone but not forgotten. Aww. Yeah. So, you know, her funeral was also kind of an opportunity to try to engage the public even more with it. So mm-hmm. um, this woman, Renee Trabo, who is the president or at the time was the president of the racing chapter of the National Organization for Women, spoke at the funeral to try to wa- raise some awareness for domestic violence mm-hmm. and abuse. And that was kind of coupled with like a plea to the public for anyone who could identify her to please, please step up and do that. So Yeah, because clearly this woman was victimized. I mean, yes. Yeah, really horrific, horrifically and over a long period of time based yeah. on like how long it takes for bones to kind of start healing and be in these various stages of healing. Like this mm-hmm. was not a one-time thing that got like out of hand or whatever, you know? Yeah, yeah. So... Rachel Trabo's words at the funeral were these. I thought these were impactful. So she said, Who was this young woman, tortured and beaten to death, found last July? She was somebody's baby, somebody's daughter, maybe somebody's sister. We don't know, but she was somebody's victim. Mm -hmm. There is at least somebody who knows the identity of this young woman, who was dumped like a piece of trash in a Raymond cornfield. Sadly, it seems no one has been looking for her. What happened in this girl's short life? When and by whom was she abandoned? Did she run away or was she held captive? Was she some family's scapegoat? When did she abandon her dreams? How or where could she have gotten help? These questions beg for answers. (sighs) Wow. (sighs) Yeah. And she's right, right? Like, they do beg for answers, but nobody had any. Yeah, like, you don't know how far away this person came from. And I would assume in the racing area, if somebody had gone missing that matched this description, somebody would have come forward. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Police were all over it. The thing about racing, location-wise, it's, like, kind of the Mm -hmm. first, when you cross the Mm -hmm. Illinois-Wisconsin border, it's kind of, like, the first bigger town you hit. Oh, yeah, I've driven through racing a hundred times. A billion times, yeah. Yeah. So it's, but it's really easy accessed from a lot of different places. You know, Madison, Chicago, if you wanted to, Minneapolis. It's also like a pretty chill ferry ride from Mm -hmm. western Michigan to towns, like kind of right on the other side of Lake Michigan and Wisconsin. So there's just like for being kind of an isolated little corner of the Midwest, there's access from a lot of much more populous areas, fairly easy to get there, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So that, I think, also just complicates things that much more, right? Yeah, you have people driving through racing from literally everywhere. Yeah, Milwaukee is right there. It's also, there's a college in racing, isn't there? Yeah, there's a uh, U Wisconsin campus there, one of the bigger ones, yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot going on in racing for being a pretty small town, so... Mm-hmm. So yeah, just nobody, nobody had those answers and they were desperately needed if this case, you know, was ever going to get solved. So Mm -hmm. the next thing that would kind of happen was a really unfortunate potential break that nobody saw coming. On December 9th, another unidentified woman was found 30 miles away in a forest preserve in Lake County, Illinois, which we may remember from our Hobbs Tobias case. That's where Zion is. 
And it's just kind of right on the other side of the border there. Yeah. So just 30 miles. So, mm-hmm. you know, barely anything as far as a drive. Now, this woman was quite a bit older than the Racine County Jane Doe, but there were some otherwise pretty clear similarities. They were both obviously victims of prolonged abuse. Yeah. They both had very prominent protruding front teeth. They both suffered from malnourishment, and they both had signs of a potential disability. And like the Racine County Jane Doe, she was not killed where she was left Mm -hmm. and had probably been killed about 12 hours prior to where she was left and well when she was found are we looking at possibly the same disability that was the that was the question okay okay that that was kind of the question that or like are we looking at somebody who's kind of preying on people that are really really vulnerable yeah yeah that's kind of what i'm what i'm curious about is Mm -hmm. who has access to this many women with kind of notable disabilities yeah exactly that's the question and i will say it's just to throw it out there like people with disabilities especially women with cognitive disabilities are at such a high rate for abuse and such a high risk for abuse and yeah so you hit my heart with this one i know i know mine too (laughs) um so you know she was also a doe this new this new person that was found um no identification on her Her wounds were kind of similarly horrific. Um, There was evidence of hot liquids having been poured on her body. Oh, my God. Yeah. Lots of healing and new wounds, kind of the same Mm -hmm. type of thing. And then she had these, like, circular abrasions on her body that were caused by whipping with some kind of braided metal. Mm Mm-hmm. They thought maybe like a bicycle chain or a fishing downrigger, some kind of braided metal was used to, to lash her. So messed up. Yeah. So those cases sound pretty similar. Mm-hmm. And that tight little location. So police were like, you know, when they heard about it across the state line, you know, the racing police were like, okay, maybe this is something. And then it would kind of start to unravel a bit. So a few weeks after the discovery of, of that second Jane Doe, a man approached an undercover police officer who was at a hotel undercover as a prostitute. So the man approached this police officer and described witnessing the murder of the unidentified Illinois woman and said that she was a prostitute and that she was killed in a hotel room by a man named Jeremy Strong. So this guy, Jeremy Strong, would eventually confess to this murder And he stated that he hit the victim with a tequila bottle and beat her to death for stealing from him and looking through his things. React to that, please. She's gone through a lot more than that, it sounds like. Yes. Yes. No. um, mm, No. This is not a whole story. No. Yeah. So despite that extremely obvious disparity. um, (laughs) Oh, God. Despite that, two other men were charged as accomplices alongside Jeremy Strong, and all three were convicted. So it still seemed like the two had to be linked. So they're, you know, maybe Jeremy Strong and his crew are victimizing these women, like, as a budding group of serial killers, right? I'm still feeling suspicious. Yeah. This is not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. It's the end of page two. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you know, the Racine County investigators were working as as hard as they could on their case with the Racine County Jane Doe. 
And I will say like these Racine County authorities, like they did not stop on this case up until basically today. So we're talking 20 years plus of just nonstop work. If, if there's a set of investigators that I want to take out for a pizza, it's the investigators in Racine County. Like, Way to go, Racine. Yeah. We love you. Ugh. Yes. Let's get together and drink beer and eat cheese curds. Just a lovely day in Wisconsin. Seriously, kind of a perfect day in Wisconsin, except I don't like cheese curds. My delicate little body is very sensitive to the dairy. To squeaking. Yes, especially if it talks back. So, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway. So, um, you know, the two counties, Racine and, and Lake County, were definitely in contact and wanted to collaborate on the two cases, but the timelines just didn't end up for Jeremy Strong and his crew to have been responsible for the Racine County Jane Doe. But I am going to speak more about that Jane Doe. So in 2006, so we're uh, quite a few years later now, the Lake County Jane Doe was finally identified by dental records as Mary-Kate Sunderland Chimizo. She was from DeKalb, Illinois, and she had last been... DeKalb? You really have to like draw out the L like that? You have to put in the L in there. DeKalb. Oh, okay. Sorry, DeKalbies. Um, <laughs> I always thought it was DeKalb. That's so nah. I've driven nah. through it a billion times. I always thought it was DeKalb. Okay. Um, <laughs> never again. I'm so sorry, guys. So she had last been seen around Labor Day before she was found. So remember, she was found in December. She had last been seen um, around Labor Day, so early September. But she had actually been looped into a sham marriage. She did have a disability. I couldn't find any publication that said which particular type of disorder she may have had. But she basically had been like looped into a marriage three weeks prior to her death by two women and a man who became her husband who were essentially manipulating her for her money and for their own amusement, basically. Oh, Um, God. Yeah. So re-examination of her body also showed that she had died earlier than originally concluded, mm-hmm. which would lead to the exoneration of Jeremy Strong and his buddies for that previous conviction. So to this I, day... I'm starting to lose a lot of faith in Lake County Police Departments. Like, I know, right? Between those two cases, like, are you kidding me right now? The two like, cases being Hobbs Tobias and this one. Like, it sounds like they just want to put stuff away and just yeah. be done with it. Just have it be simple. And yeah. And this was and like, you know, you have to verify a story. You can't just like, oh, a confession. Great. Cool. You have yeah. to verify yeah. a confession. Which interestingly, in a weird flippy way, is why this case remains technically unsolved. So mm-hmm. even though Mary-Kate had been linked to these three people, the two women and then the man that she ended up being married to... The husband did confess to her abuse and murder, but his confession was thrown out due to his own mental illness. So it's solved unsolved, basically. And I tell that whole story, A, because I think there needs to be some awareness to it, but also B, because, you know, that was about seven years after the discovery of the Racine County Jane Doe, when everything kind of came to a head with this case getting thrown out. So it's like, you know, years kind of spent thinking like, maybe, maybe this was the guy, but it's itchy, it doesn't quite fit, but could be an answer, who knows, to then just have it be like, nope, nope, and we're back at square one. Back at square one with the Racine woman. Yeah, exactly. 
So that's kind of how it would feel like we would, you know, there would be some progress or kind of like Delphi in a way, like a person of interest. Okay, this is interesting. Maybe we have an identity for her. And then, nope, not going to work. And so this guy's confession got thrown out Mm -hmm. for For mental illness. Did he get any sentence, anything? No. Yeah. Nobody has ever been convicted in her case other than the three men that were exonerated. That's really pathetic. Yes, it is. Lake County, I will not be taking you out for cheese curds. You have your own money. Take your own, buy your own cheese curds. And maybe some new detectives. Yeah, invest in some training. Do you have any Um, idea how much money is in Lake County? uh, I've driven through it enough times to (laughs) have a pretty good idea. Uh (laughs) I believe it. Anything with lake in the title, I feel like you can make a pretty good assumption that there's some money involved. Anyway, that's not the point of this story. It's not. We're getting a little ranty. So you get ranty because the years wear on, you know? Yeah. And Mary-Kate Chimizo was identified so much, you know, earlier than the Racine County Jane Doe would be. But the Racine County Jane Doe, she captured people's hearts and her identity kind of just haunted armchair sleuths everywhere you can find a billion message boards Mm -hmm. you know with theories the racing county jane doe subreddit was active the entire time i mean like several posts a week like that kind of stuff i just think she really captured people's hearts people really wanted to see her get her name back you know and see this case get solved You know, and some of those theories were shared by law enforcement and some of them kind of stayed, you know, amidst the internet. But, you know, there's like different levels of plausibility to different theories, right? So the first thing on police minds after kind of getting over the disappointment that the Mary-Kate Chimizo case was not going to be linked was that this was some kind of sex trafficking case because she did show signs of sexual assault. Mm -hmm. The thing that kind of would contradict that was her outfit, not to kind of put too fine a point on it, but it was very wholesome. Mm-hmm. Casual, like it was a men's shirt she was wearing, like gray sweatpants, comfortable, you know? Mm-hmm. So there was some skepticism around that theory kind of because of that. But I could also this, see that as like, these are just scrap clothes. Somebody could have just thrown them on her. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And, and also because she didn't match any kind of missing persons reports from the region at all, police had to assume at that point that she was from out of potentially out of the country mm-hmm. or at least out of the region, like, you know, years and years and years of no one coming forward to identify her or to claim her. So, yeah. yeah. So, you know, years are going by. And now we're going to be in 2011. Police had a new theory in 2011. So they hoped that maybe, 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 maybe she was Andrea Bowman, who um, was a missing teenager from Hamilton, Michigan. So Andrea Bowman disappeared at the age of 14 in 1989. Wow. Shortly after reporting her adoptive family for abuse. So Andrea did look like the description of the Jane Doe. Okay. In order for it to have been plausible, she would have had to have been kept alive for about 10 years in captivity and then killed a decade later than her disappearance and then, you know, left in that Wisconsin cornfield. 
Yeah, is it necessary that she was kept in captivity that entire time, or if she was a runaway, right. she was on the street for a period and then picked up and kidnapped? Yeah, it could be any combination of that mm-hmm. because yeah. when she was initially reported missing, the theory was right away that she was a runaway because she had mm-hmm. had kind of a a history and she had just reported abuse, so the police kind of thought like, okay, maybe she, you know, took this in her own hands and decided to to skip out. So. Uh, this was kind of the theory in 2011. Police were mm-hmm. like, maybe, maybe she's Andrea Bowman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, unfortunately, so many things in this case are unfortunate. DNA uh. could not corroborate that. And Andrea's case would go unsolved until very recently, February of 2020, when her adoptive father, who was facing some serious time for the murder of another woman, confessed to her killing and led police to her skeletal remains. Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. Does that is what, baffle you how many people get away with murder? It does. It also baffles me, like, just going through this case, how much a long-term unsolved case can have these, like, dominoes to other cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's it just makes it feel so, like, interconnected. But there, I could see why the Andrea Bowman theory kind of captured the police. Like, it would be a pretty chill ferry ride from that part of Michigan to that part of Wisconsin or if she was a runaway first and she kind of went around and did the Chicago thing for a few years or kind of whatever. Yeah, exactly what I was kind of thinking. But, you know, it just, these theories, like, they would kind of pop up and be investigated with, like, all this fervor and then the bubble gets burst and for whatever reason, like, the theory gets debunked and they have to move on, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. So another year later in 2012, uh, NECMEC, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, they created a new composite, hoping to, again, like kind of refresh awareness on this case. Mm -hmm. I'm, again, just like really touched by how often this case was like touched back on. Like it just stayed visible this whole time. And that's really rare. Especially for a Jane Doe. Yeah, exactly. So um, the new NECMEC composite was based on the autopsy photos themselves rather than description of the autopsy photos. Mm -hmm. So the new composite is really, really, really good. And the hope was that it would click somebody's memory. Mm -hmm. So another year later, on October 16, 2013, Racine County decided to exhume Jane Doe's remains with the hope that some isotope analysis could shed some further light on who she was, or at least where she was from. All right, I love it. Um, Yes, yes. So they exhumed her in 2013 for a new set of analyses, and she would not get reburied until 2016. Wow. Um, I think, I don't think that they were being neglectful. I think that they were being that thorough. They were just trying to save it for any opportunity. Yes, yes. I really believe that with this case. So do we get to talk about familial DNA at all? Yes, we do. A little bit. Okay. Go keep going. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So with all those examinations complete and ready for release, the authorities announced that the isotope analysis showed that prior to being in Wisconsin, she was likely from Alaska, Montana, or maybe Southern Canada. Okay. So uh, it was looking good that she, with the theory that she wasn't a local. Mm-hmm. So she was reburied with a, another second funeral again 
in large part because of Rene Sura and it drew crowds of mourners. And again, just like nobody was forgetting her, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So of course, like, okay, we've got this new like location set potentially. And so now it's like, okay, how about some genetic genealogy? That's our next step. We love this. We do love it. However, Mm. yeah, sorry. But before that could be completed, (laughs) it does still come to play. But before that could be completed, there was finally, finally, finally a break. Yes. Yeah. And this break comes to us in 2019. We're talking 20 years after the discovery of this body. Jesus. Yeah. So on, uh, I might cry a little bit in this case. (laughs) Okay. Um, So on September 23rd, 2019, a a phone call came in from Cape Coral, Florida, from someone who said that her neighbor had been telling people that she killed a woman when she lived in Illinois. Oh, shit. Yes. So the tipster originally you know, phoned it into Illinois, but uh, because everyone was so in touch, the tip did get to racing. And obviously it had to be followed, right? Mm -hmm. So the rest of the story would kind of unfold pretty rapidly. The woman that was telling people that she had killed somebody in Illinois, her name was Linda LaRoche. She was a former nurse. So chew on that for a second. Mm -hmm. So she was brought in for questioning, um, as well as her ex-husband and her adult children, and they were all spoken to. And based on that line of questioning and confirmation via familial DNA, we finally, finally, after 20 years, had a name for Jane Doe. Oh, thank God. What's her name? Please tell me. Her, her name is Peggy Lynn Johnson Schroeder. Okay. So uh, she was 23 years old when she died in 1999. Mm-hmm. Because Jane Doe was Jane Doe for so long before she got to be Peggy, I'm going to talk about Peggy for a minute here before we get I back guess. into the case. Yeah. So uh, Peggy was loved, and that is something I want to really reiterate here. Mm-hmm. Peggy was loved, and some things happened in her life that just changed the course of it. And led to, you know, what happened in that cornfield. So she was a quiet, sweet person. She grew up mostly with her mom, Diane, and her stepfather, Lawrence, and a brother, Jesse, in Harvard, Illinois. So at some point in her early life, her parents, or her mom and her stepfather separated. But she had a a really good relationship with her stepfather and kind of stayed in touch with him over the years. She had a pretty normal upbringing. And a lot of details are unknown because a lot of people in this story just died young. So her entire immediate family, aside from her stepfather, Lawrence, all died when she was like kind of in high school and in her early 20s. But wow. Yeah. So we're kind of relying on a lot of what like school friends would say and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So she was remembered by her school friends as being good natured with a big toothy grin, reserved but friendly, and that she really enjoyed school despite her disability. Mm -hmm. My thought on what that disability was, we don't have like an official name for that. I think it probably is Fragile X. Okay. Based on how she looks and just kind of the Fragile X impacts women a little bit less severely than Mm -hmm. it does males. 
but she she has the physical features and it just kind of fits with you know kind of how she's described as like she had some struggles but she still was like going to school and you know, in a traditional setting things like that so that's my just my personal theory from my like rudimentary obsession with gen- <laughs> genetic disorders. But um. there's such there's such an array of fragile X presentations. I mean, like mm-hmm. like any genetic um, disability, fragile X can be super duper mild, and mm-hmm. yeah, it does affect women less because we have two X chromosomes. Exactly, which there's means that more. one of them tends to overcompensate for the other one if there is yeah. a breakage or mosaic or anything like that so yeah yeah so that's that's kind of why that was my conclusion um, okay but you know I, I very well could be wrong so that's just kind of my my best like you know layman's guess so she did really well up until her, until her senior year of high school but when she was a senior her mom passed away mm-hmm. yeah after her mom's death she was just kind of left to her own devices so at 18 in 1994, she was a legal adult, but because she did have those impairments, a lot of people would ask later, like, how could she have fallen through the cracks? Like, why was nobody, like, looking out for her in kind of an extra way at this time? But Oh, my God, because once you turn 18, mm-hmm. you don't have any formal supports unless somebody's there to advocate for them for you. Exactly. Unless... For your IEP, you're in school until you're 22, which... Which, if she was doing well, then they wouldn't have done that. Exactly. Yeah, it sounds and, like she was in gen ed classes. She wasn't, you know, she wasn't in special population. And navigating the bureaucracy that is social security disability and... Oh my gosh. Getting the paperwork to prove that you have a disability and... Mm. Oh, it's a nightmare. So, no, that makes complete sense to me. Yeah. Yeah, to me too. And just the timing is just really heartbreaking. So, you know, when that happened, she knew to seek her own assistance, but just Mm -hmm. not the full, like, bureaucratic, you know, set of hoops to jump through. Mm -hmm. She went to a medical center in McHenry, uh, Illinois, kind of another town over. And that's where she met Linda LaRoche. And Linda LaRoche offered her a job as a nanny and a housekeeper, kind of in exchange for room and board, essentially. And by all accounts from like her stepfather and some of her friends, this made Peggy just really, really happy because, you know, she was obviously feeling like kind of like a little wanderer after losing Mm -hmm. her mom and everything. So God, who most people would, right? Yeah. So she had a path now, right? She had like a real Mm -hmm. job and a nice family to live with. Like she's doing okay. So she communicated that to her family and friends. So you know, nothing, nothing weird, nothing to see here. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, Peggy's living her life. And so her stepfather and a couple of her close friends, you know, would call the LaRoche home regularly to, to say hi to her. One of her friends actually visited the LaRoche home once in 95, but there might be some frustration about like, okay, so 94 to 99, was no, did nobody have eyes on Peggy? After 95, there wasn't a lot. There was one time that her family saw her in 98, and I'll talk about that for a second. But um, Peggy was never listed as a missing person because yeah, she was never she out of touch for that long. She was never really missing. So Yeah. So, you know, there was no way for her to be identified as the Jane Doe before the tipster came through from Florida. 
So basically nobody thought that she was missing. She was in touch with people like semi-regularly. And even as it kind of like the contact would kind of slow down a bit in those later years, I think there was just this assumption like, okay, she's in her early 20s. Like contact with her stepfather is gonna, you know, well, slow that's what down. I was thinking. Like we all lose touch with people and shut off after high mm-hmm. school and start new lives. So if I didn't contact somebody from high school, they wouldn't think that it's especially strange. Yeah, they'd probably think it was weirder if I did contact them. <laughs> Be like, are you okay? <laughs> yeah. I can see that not raising any alarm bells. Exactly, exactly. And the last time her family saw her was only a year before she was found in that cornfield. So mm-hmm. her family saw her once in 1998 for a really tragic reason because her younger brother, Jesse, had died and they saw her at the funeral. Um, oh, Jesse was geez. 18 when he died, yeah. Now, the stepfather called once in 1999 and he was told to never call again because Peggy no longer lived there and had gone to live in California with her birth father. The way that this sat with Lawrence was interesting to me. Like, Peggy had never met her birth father to anyone's knowledge. I was about to ask, yeah. Yeah, he was not a part of her life at all. She didn't seem to know who he was. Like, I couldn't find anything that implied, like, that she had a name or, like, anything like that. But I think Lawrence being in, like, a stepfather position, like... I think there's an impetus to kind of like, okay, when we're talking about the birth parents, we just kind of take a step back, you know, like, Mm -hmm. okay, if that's what she did, then that's what she did, you know. That's what we kind of know about Peggy's life up until then. Now, what was going on behind the doors of the LaRoche home was a much different thing than what those phone calls and occasional visits would suggest. And a lot of what happened behind those closed doors, we don't necessarily have the details of because Linda LaRoche has never spoken to them. What we know is detailed out mostly by her ex-husband and her children mm-hmm. about what Peggy went through over those five years and how it would accumulate in her death. So to start, Peggy's bedroom was a crawl space beneath the house, a literal crawl space. Mm. And that's where she was to be if she wasn't working around the house or minding the LaRoche children. Mm-hmm. Linda LaRoche would routinely scream at Peggy, quote, like an animal. That's what her kids said. And her kids would cite particular cruelty around the language used against Peggy and that Peggy was beaten regularly. The children once observed their mother stabbing Peggy in the head with a pitchfork. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Really just beyond the pale ugly ugly stuff she was obviously deprived of food she was not Mm -hmm. 120 pounds when she was 18 Mm -hmm. but she was when she was found later so she was deprived of food and linda laroche would justify the abuse by claiming that peggy was bringing drugs and strange men into the home which of course yeah sure Sure, linda Right, yeah. Not corroborated at all. She had a perfectly clean talk screen at autopsy. The kids nor the ex-husband ever saw random men in their house. It just did not happen. So, okay, Linda. Okay, Linda. So like I said, we'll never know the full extent of what happened to Peggy at Linda LaRoche's home unless Linda LaRoche speaks to it. Mm -hmm. So what I just listed out was what we know kind of from her kids and from her ex-husband. But her injuries tell us that 
there was a long and painful story of mm-hmm. years and years and years of abuse at the hands of Linda LaRoche. Mm. Yeah. I have questions about the ex-husband, but... Yeah, well, <laughs> let me... You're going to have some interesting questions in a second here about him. So... Oh, okay. Yeah. So... Um, breathe. <laughs> yeah, just breathe a little bit. So the next thing that needs to be explored is Peggy's last day, right? Mm-hmm. So when asked about Peggy's last day, Linda LaRoche's story changed a few times. So first, she said that she came home to uh, Peggy overdosed, pouring pills on the sink before she passes out. So she took Peggy to her grandmother's house and left her there. Now, Peggy's grandmother, who was actually Lawrence's mother, so her step-grandmother, but who cares? A grandma's a grandma. Obviously, the grandmother was like, no, she was not here. I've never met Linda LaRoche. Uh, that did not happen. Um, <laughs> the step-grandmother is still alive to this day. She's 84. She will reiterate that story. Hell yes. Yeah. So then Linda Reloche is like, okay, well, so I actually, you know, same thing. She was on drugs, but instead of taking her to her grandma's house, what I actually did was I drove her unharmed. She was fine to the field in Wisconsin where she was let out of the car perfectly healthy. And Linda LaRoche said, something else must have happened to her. That's a quote. I'm sorry, Linda. Yeah. I'm I'm sorry. Nobody is believing any of this. You said she was a nurse? Mm Mm-hmm. How did she think she was going to get away with this? With all of those lies? That's a good question. I kind of wonder if she kind of thought she would get away with it because she is a nurse. Like, you know, I'm an upstanding citizen. I'm a helper. You know, I was just trying to to take somebody in and she had all these issues. And I, you know, I tried. Maybe this is like an elitist question of me. But what like type or level of nurse was she? Because there's different levels of training and different levels of like awareness of Mm. what you can test for and what you can prove and... Like, there's a nursing assistant and a CNA and a BSN and all of that. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think mm-hmm. she was a CNA, but I okay. feel like I may have read that, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't. It, it's, it's just curious because I'm like, there's a lot of medical evidence here that even if you're not into forensics or anything, mm-hmm. if you're a nurse, you know that stuff's going to get noticed. Yeah, and you'd have to have a better story, especially like claiming somebody was intoxicated when a tox screen is the first thing that is going to be done. It, that's like my biggest thing. Mm-hmm. You know they can check for that. Yeah, and even in the 90s, like those tests were very robust. So that's mm-hmm. not something that's even had to change that much over time. No. Yeah. So they asked the ex-husband about the, the last day, Peggy's last day. And he told a different story. He said that he came home one day and Peggy was unconscious on the floor and that he thought that she was, in fact, already dead at that time. She may have been, but she may have been kind of clinging to life, you know, either way. LaRoche told him the same thing, that she had overdosed. So she was doubling down on the story. And she asked him to take the kids out for some ice cream so that she could, quote, deal with it. He recalled her being gone for about two and a half hours, and he never saw Peggy again after that. Okay. Yeah. So um, the ex-husband's story seems pretty fair to me. If you if you go into Google Maps and you take a look at the distance between McHenry and Raymond, yeah. 
It's about an hour and five minutes, um, which pretty perfectly lines up with the idea that she was gone for about two and a half hours, Mm -hmm. particularly if you assume, like I do, that she had to drive around a few minutes to find... A decent um, place. Yeah. Or I think, because she's disgusting, that she was also driving around a few minutes with Peggy hanging out of the car, which is how she got that road rash. Oh, I forgot about that part. Yeah. So I think she was making some sport out of it, to be honest. God, Just what it based is on that medical it. evidence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really, really, really disgusting. So our story is kind of winding down here. On November 5th, 2019, Linda LaRoche was officially arrested for Peggy's murder and for concealment of a corpse. Obviously, November 5th, 2019 is right before COVID-19 and that crisis kind of hitting us. So her trial has been at a standstill. Because at first, she just had this struggle to find legal representation. She did not qualify for services from the local public defender, which I thought was really interesting. What? Um, I thought everybody just by default qualified. I'm trying to understand how this works exactly, but because she lived somewhere different from where the crime was committed, and then there was like a third location where the body was found. We've got three states involved here. So it's like, who's responsible for... Where is it being prosecuted in Illinois or mm-hmm. in in Illinois? No, it's being prosecuted in Wisconsin. Oh, but, okay. Because yeah. I think even McHenry is in a different county. It's in, yeah, yeah. There's just so many different yeah, jurisdictional okay. issues going on here. Okay. Um, Interesting to know that. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, she did finally get somebody appointed to service her legal squad, and then coronavirus hit. So mm-hmm. she's currently being held. Her next felony status conference is June 11th of this year, so just a couple of weeks away. So that's kind of where the, the legality of this case sits. So we'll have to serve up some updates on this one kind of as we go on. Because what's crazy about this to me is, like, we start in 99, and mm-hmm. we're kind of just scratching the surface on what could potentially come out at trial with this case yeah. once we're finally able to get to that that's part of the process. Yeah, damn. Yeah. All right. So that is going to be about two weeks after we release this one. Yeah. It's uh, the same week as the felony status conference for my personal true crime. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got a lot of felony status conferences to watch that week. It's going to be yeah. all I'm doing. <laughs> so, all right, um, listeners, we want you guys to listen out for this one. Yeah. Check yeah, out Linda. Please do. please do. And again, that reporting from Adam Rogan is really, really phenomenal. If, if you're curious yeah. about some more information here. So I am super curious. Yeah. So, um, you know, I just in this last couple of minutes, I just kind of want to speak to like where this kind of leaves Peggy's family. So Peggy's family, what's left of Peggy's family is kind of this like extended step family, mm-hmm. essentially. And the way that kind of I read like all their different kind of accounts of stuff and kind of their feelings and, and everything they've been going through, it kind of culminates in this like mix of like delayed grief because... Mm-hmm. You know, I think it, it just seemed kind of like, like, okay, like she went her own way and, you know, we just don't know what happened, but we hope Peggy's doing well. And now they have kind of all this delayed grief to deal with, but there's also a sense of peace because there is an answer and her, her body was moved to be laid to rest next to her mom in Illinois. And she was uh, reinterred on what would have been her 44th birthday, which was March 4th, 2020. Oh, God, that has to be some complicated grief for her family. 
Yeah, big time. Um, so I'm going to close on this quote from her step-grandmother, whose name is Grace Schroeder. She says, we know she's at rest now. She's the lucky one. She's up there in heaven now with God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's our case this week. Damn. Yeah. Do that's they, a huh? heavy one. Yeah, that one just like hit a lot of spots, man. Yeah, it really I was I was in a state when I put this story together. <laughs> I mean, I was in a state. Mm-hmm. And like I thought about putting it off to wait for more of a litigation to come through, but with the way that things are going, you know, moving through the court system right now, like with the backlog from COVID, it's like how long yeah. you wait for information and just who knows. So I thought Let's cover it now because it just mm-hmm. really captured my heart and then just be attuned to updates, you know. I kind of like it when we're able to discuss something and kind of, you know, as a podcast family, yes. watch it all kind of play out like like with Sydney Loof and we mm-hmm. got to kind of watch that play out after covering her story and yeah, all of that. Sure. So I'm glad you did it now. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I thought I thought long and hard. Oh, thank you. Um, I guess like <laughs> my docket of cases for right now, like they're all just like hitting me right in the feels. <laughs> so I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Oh god. Yeah. Yeah. So further discussion on this case will be imminent as more information you know comes out. So mm-hmm. that's where we're at. Yeah, always that's tugging on at. the heartstrings, man. I know it's what I do best. Because my heart's always just bleeding everywhere. It is. It is. I know. It's just like sitting out there on the table, just like bleeding for everyone to see. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's right there on my sleeve. Just (laughs) boom, 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 (laughs) boom. All the time. It's really annoying. But I am what you are. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And I like to think that our podcast family understands and appreciates our finer points, you know? I think they do. I, I hope think they, they do. do. Yeah. We love you out there. We love you guys. Yeah. So now that I have completely re-rocked myself with this story after working on it for several weeks, <laughs> tell us about next week. <laughs> uh, I've struggled with how to introduce this story because there's like this salacious attention grabbing way to introduce it. And mm-hmm. then there's like the way that it actually hit me. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So... I'm going to tell you like my honest feels. We are going to cover the case of a disappearance of a well-known Illinois man, a tattoo artist, an antique collector, Hmm. all-around great human who his case got solved like this one after many, many years Hmm. um, because of the people who loved him and because of the people who wouldn't shut up about him. Wow, interesting. So, mm-hmm. Okay. So well, I'm ready for that. We're going to travel to many different states. We're going to be in Missouri and Kansas. We're going to pop over to Arizona for a quick minute. <laughs> so, yeah. Dang. We're mid-wretched spreading our wings to these different places. We're road tripping. Yeah. Everyone gets a vacation. <laughs> we need a vacation. We really do. Oh, my God. We need a vacation. Seriously. Life is hard. Life is so hard. (sighs) You've had a rough week, so I want you to just rest and... You know what? I just want to have running water. 
Like, we didn't talk about it, but um, we have, like, little to no plumbing in our new house. So that's new. It was missed in the spotless plumbing inspection. Oh, okay. Yeah. I just want to use the bathroom. And Do you need to go to McDonald's to poop? We've all done it. It's okay. Their lobby's not open, homie. What? Yeah. Target. Go to Target. Nah, that's true. I could go to Target. Go poop at Target. <laughs> it's 9.38. <laughs> I have to go to bed. <laughs> oh, damn. I think they close at 10, too. So. Yeah, they do. And now I live far away, so I'm not going to get there in less than 25 minutes. So <laughs> so just uh, send me vibes that by the next time that we are recording that I am able to fully enjoy the facilities <laughs> in my home. Because <laughs> I'm a poop orphan right now, and it's just really sad. i am so sorry this is terrible thank you i love you you. we just had our poop pipe cleaned so man it's important you don't realize how important that is until it's gone y'all we live in old houses you're as much older than mine but yeah i know this house is 150 years old and it just settled on the wrong pipe and guys always do the extra sewer inspection always do a sewer inspection Yep, because I can't believe that my house just decided to settle in the last two weeks. Like, I think it was just best. It's 150 but... years old. It didn't yeah. settle in two weeks. Yeah, she's been settling for a long time now. So. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, just send me good vibes, please, because uh, um, we're on the struggle bus in this house. So we need vibes. Good ones. I'll send you vibes. Do you want me to send you a pizza or is that a bad idea? No, no, don't send a pizza. <laughs> Dairy is not our friend in this house right now. <laughs> some fiber should i send you some fiber no uh you can send me more plants i like that okay uh well we're rambling so we should really sign anyway we are um anyway come back next week um Mm -hmm. we're going to cover a really interesting case yeah um yeah other than that we love you so much yeah keep hanging with us on the socials at midwretched everywhere and you know you gotta remember to be nice and remember to eat cheese, but not too much if you don't have running toilets. Yeah, and if you eat cheese and you can poop in your own home, just send me a little poop prayer that I'll have the same benefit. Um, and anyway, we love guys, you. We love you. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> bye. Okay, <Kay>, bye. <laughs> try again sure (laughs) aim for less fucking weird this time